Sometimes the definition of insanity is described as doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results each time. Part of the insanity discussed in today's episode is Democrats and Republicans, and probably also Libertarians, repeating themselves and expecting something different. Voting certainly is insanity. There was a time in this country when that was not quite so. Oh, they had their own problems. But today's problems seem to stem, in some large part, I think, from knowing next to nothing of what a general government and a state government and a community can or ought to do. Mostly the doing is left to the general government. They have shown well how that is completely insane. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 99. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here with the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, to find all the previous shows, show notes, pages. You can find the links to items mentioned on those shows and contact information for the guests. From that podcasts page, click the support hyperlink to find all the podcatcher icons, as well as a few ways to help support the show. You can make a donation through Patreon or PayPal, which I appreciate, or you can subscribe to either or both Tom Woods Liberty Classroom and McClanahan Academy. Both offer excellent, easy-to-use content in history, and Liberty Classroom also has courses on logic or Western civilizations and politics and economics. Both programs offer on-the-go content you can listen to while driving the car, weeding the garden, or preparing dinner. They are also excellent supporting content for the misinformation from those school-at-home programs many of us will be using. Click the banners on the show notes page to learn more. You can also support the show with a rating and a review of the show. If you like the show... Let the other podcast listeners know. Share the episodes on social media so your friends can listen, and that also helps grow the audience. I teased a few weeks back about a cookbook. Well, it's done. The paperback version is waiting for approval as of this recording, but I expect that soon. The Kindle version is up and ready to go, and if you use Kindle on your laptop or tablet, you can easily Read the recipes in the kitchen while you prep. Enter culinarylibertarian.com slash cooking for comfort into your browser to find my blog post with the link to the Amazon Kindle Reader. Book, not the reader. Michael Bolden returns to the show. I invited Michael on to pick his brain about some part of the current state of affairs. 
I enjoy Merkel's view on things and how he finds a way to take action on an issue. Michael actually gives some pretty sound advice, advice he learned, on how to help parse out the issues. This show is more ebb and flow than other episodes, but it is fun, and Michael offers lots of really good ideas. Michael, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Um, It's been a while since you've been on, and so maybe there's people who don't no, I can't imagine that's true because they probably read the Soviet Poverty Life Center. But in case they don't read that and they don't know who you are, just a very short intro about who you are and what you do. And then we're going to get into this thing. Oh, wait, we're recording? We've been recording. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that gave me a chance to pull up my SPLC Southern Poverty Law Center profile. I like oh, yeah. reading this. You should. This is, this is now my official... Uh, my official intro, when I get introduced to do a speech in an event, if they don't do this, I will literally read it myself because Please do. why not just own it, right? Mm-hmm. Michael Bolden is an ideologue who has spent years promoting the ideas that states can, scare quote, nullify federal legislation they don't like. The very same argument pushed by defenders of slavery and segregation and just as baseless now as it was then. Back to you, Dan. <laughs> I'd forgotten how much comic relief that thing had. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Dave Smith did a whole pod. I mean, just out of nowhere, he just decided to read through the whole thing. And he did a whole podcast on it a while back. That's I mean, they put, the, they put that up like, I don't know, it's about seven, eight years. And it's not just, they do this Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, you know, I hate to take away, and it's unfortunate that they have actually done positive things in the legal realm for people. So it's unfortunate that they've, I think what they've done is they've taken that success and they've taken that reputation from years ago and they've turned it into kind of a political propaganda machine uh, if you don't support basically the establishment, well, call them left, you're evil and bad. Now they do this annual kind of hate watch listing of uh, potential racist and extreme ideology groups. And they list all kinds of organizations and people on there. But then at this time, and it may have been 2011, 2012, somewhere around there, they decided to do a whole profile of what they called the 30 leaders of the radical right. And I was named as one of the lead uh, dangerous people of the radical right, which anybody who meets me, though, they would think is absolutely absurd. And I've had people who I've hung out with who, after like knowing them for a year or so, like, oh, dude, I don't know why I was Googling you, but I can't believe that you're in this thing. And they've got this whole profile page on me as an anti-government extremist. I mean, I guess in a weird way, when you live under the largest government, largest empire in the history of the planet, being anti-government is a pretty good thing. Anybody who isn't, I think, is probably the bad guy. Yeah, the, the whole idea that being an anti-government extremist is a bad thing seems like a very odd position to take in the first place. You know, I don't know how to put it, but Mother Jones came out and they did a defense of me and all. And Mother Jones is a very progressive, old school, progressive magazine. And one of the writers, Stephanie Mensimer, who I had met years ago, and I'm assuming she's not on board with a lot of things that I do, but she's like, well, this guy's like, He's not what they portray him to be like on the edges of being a racist bad guy. Uh, because she's like, look, he's uh, anti-drug war. He's opposing all the foreign wars uh, against surveillance, things like this. Like, 
there's a lot of common ground here with what we think on the progressive end of the spectrum. And I think people like that, whether they're on the left or the right, and I know you want to talk a little bit about that spectrum. Uh, I think the people who are honest and recognize where there is common ground and where there is difference, those are the people that I, I find most interesting. Well, and just as a bit of a commercial for your main work is for the 10th Amendment Center. Oh, right. And, and I didn't even mention that. 10thamendmentcenter.com. Right. I just did my SP. They don't, SPLC didn't want anyone to get a link to my website. No, of course not. That would, that would, that would be counter their <laughs> needs. So one of the things that um, you were on Bob Murphy's show and you mentioned it, and you mentioned it on my show last time, and you talk about it pretty much every time you can, uh, and your uh, chief communication officer also mentions it often, is working with people or organizations on a issue-by-issue -issue basis yeah. to reach some accord closer to liberty, which makes working, so it, <clears throat> the whole work with the left, work with the right thing, well, that's we have a lot of history demonstrating that that's just not going to happen. But if you pick your battles very particularly and find people who agree with you on this battle, the war on drugs is a waste of human resources and financial resources and time resources and, and just land and all kinds of things. So you, you fight against those things. It's easy to do, mind you, as a, a Tenth Amendment kind of guy, because the idea of the Tenth Amendment is that the federal government is only authorized to exercise the powers delegated to it in the Constitution. There's not many of those things that were delegated, and everything else is outside their hands, reserved to the states or to the people as the people of each state determined. So most everything the federal government has ever done in our lifetime, they shouldn't be doing. So it's really easy to find stuff that people don't like, that they shouldn't be doing, saying, hey, we are on board with changing this or ending this. And you can pick across the political spectrum and all shades in between, and you will find people who agree with you on one thing. You'll find some people who agree with you on two or five or 10, and very few people who agree with you on everything. And I think people in the broader liberty movement, whether it's ANCAPs or civil libertarians or uh, libertarian party activists, whatever, I think they run into a lot of that same type of thing. Because when you see, especially like in the ANCAP realm, when you see that every government program is enforced by the barrel of a gun, it's very easy to see everybody as your enemy because they're supporting one bad program or one way to throw you in prison or get you killed or another. But if we took the approach that we should not even associate with them, I mean, no one would ever go to Thanksgiving dinner ever because you, can you imagine uh, the like, having to have the exact same viewpoints on everything? I would only be talking to myself. And I think I disagree with myself pretty often, too often to make that work either. Well, you're, it's interesting you bring that up because I just did a podcast about family dynamics and politics and social media. And there, I, my, most of my family isn't on board with my political thinking. But when we're together, who cares? 
Yeah, I mean, in I think in family dynamics, it's going to be a little bit different because you're together for a different reason. I'm not going to necessarily, I mean, I can take that kind of a hippie view. You know, I'm a Californian for, for many, many years now, but I can take that that hippie view that every human being is my brother or my sister. I'm fine with that. And I love everybody. And I try to, you know, I mean, I also get frustrated by a lot of people, but, but so it's going to be a little different dynamic, but I think it's a, it's an interesting analogy because if you can find a way to set aside differences about one thing or another in order to find a positive interaction with family, and a lot of people love our family, they have very contentious relationships with family. But if you can find a way to do that, you can also find a way to do that with someone who may be on board with ending civil asset forfeiture, but is really terrible on the right to keep and bear arms. And what I've learned over the years, and I probably mentioned this to Bob uh, when I did that interview with him recently, what I've learned over the years is I found that when I'm really, really, really consistent and really, really good, and when you're taking the liberty position on any issue, for a lot of people, you're going to sound really good on this. Scott Horton, that's the old Scott Horton rule. When you're when you're a libertarian, it's very easy to out left the left and out right the right on all their fav- their best issues, their supposed best issues. So if you're really consistent, really solid and really good on a particular issue over a period of time, you absolutely will have people who disagree with you on other issues suddenly start saying, you know, I hadn't ever thought of this other issue, but you've been so reliable on this one that we agree on that I'm just interested in your take. And I think it's a lead by example. It's a very long game. Jeff Deist, uh, last year at the Mises Institute Annual Supporters Summit, where he was so kind to invite me to come and do a speak at that event here in L.A., he gave this great speech uh, to the supporters talking about how the Mises Institute, and I agree, their 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 long-term strategy is brick by brick. This was a phrase to use, he used, and I've been using it a lot myself lately. Brick by brick, building the foundation for liberty. But if you have that type of a, a thought process, then the idea of, well, I got to convince everybody next to me to agree with me on every single issue all the time, or I want nothing to do with them, then that just goes out the window. You can think like, oh, I can make headway on this and I'm setting a brick, I'm building the foundation for something bigger. Well, it's that's a really good analogy and it's also Well, it's diced. It's well, yeah, he's pretty good with those. But <laughs> there the the opposite is trying to fight every battle on every front is not possible. Absolutely exhausting. No, it's not possible anyways. I mean, and that's no, why not. a lot of times when we're doing, when we work, at least at TAC, when we do these single issue coalitions, one of the reasons that I kind of decided to start doing that as an organization, because we do educational stuff, we we teach people about constitutional issues and uh, how, you know, how things, how government is supposed to be working and all the stuff that they're not supposed to be doing, right? We, we do some basic philosophical stuff and history, but a bigger part of that is I actually want to advance liberty. So I don't want to just talk. I don't want to just read. I don't want to just do videos. The reason for all that is to build a foundation for liberty. I don't think it'll happen in my lifetime, but for the future, I want to play that part. And so as I started thinking about like what to do, I recognized early on in this whole organization I started back in 2006 now um, was that if I'm going to be successful 
trying to advance liberty. I'm going to have to just work with people on a single issue because most people, they don't have time or the wherewithal or the interest of focusing on everything all the time. So for one group of people or for one person, the right to keep and bear arms is the number one thing. It is the only thing they care about because they've got their life, their family. The Federal Reserve has been destroying the purchasing power of the dollar for so many years that they have to work an extra job to be able to pay for their day-to-day existence. So a lot of people just don't have the time or energy to go beyond the one issue or a couple. So I found that to be relatively successful in getting things done. And if we're talking about undermining the largest government in the history of the world, that means doing things on a state, local, or an individual level to reject their unconstitutional or immoral programs in Washington, D.C. And then I just started learning over time, like, oh, well, I work with a lot of people that I never thought I would even want to be in the same room as. So, right. But over time, you learn that they build respect for you. Mike Meharry and I, uh, we, a few years ago, in our efforts on the surveillance state, uh, turning off the water to the NSA, for example, although that wasn't the particular focus. We went to New York City to meet with uh, some of the top ACLU people at headquarters there. Well, I remember at one point, we're, we're sitting there and this guy's telling a story. He's like, oh, yeah, my my case. And someone could tell from my face that I had no idea who this dude was that I was talking to. And he's like, oh, you don't know who this is. Ben, why don't you tell Michael and Mike, uh, you know, who your <laughs> client is? And it turns out this was Edward Snowden's lawyer. So, <laughs> so, I'm like, oh, that's pretty awesome. I'm a fan. Right. So. But needless to say, they the example that I like to give about meeting with some of these bigwigs at ACLU is they were willing to work with us on advancing measures to protect privacy and reject mass surveillance on a state by state level, a very 10th Amendment approach only on surveillance. And it, they would casually like make fun of Mike and I about our opposition to things like gun control and Obamacare. And, you know, and it was all in good humor. They're like, well, at least it isn't that Obamacare stuff. And I recognize it was a very friendly jab from someone who just disagree with you. And that's fine. And I don't mind that at all. But what I really respected about those particular people who worked for ACLU National was their willingness to acknowledge the huge chasm in ideological uh, viewpoints but still be willing to try to get things done. And we actually have actually worked with ACLU to do very a very good number of uh, pretty positive things on protecting privacy, uh, rejecting things like license plate reader surveillance, uh, stingray cell site simulator surveillance, drone surveillance, and on and on. Now we're working a lot on things like us banning facial recognition at the local level too. Well, Fauci has helped you tremendously with that. Oh, yeah. There was actually something in The Intercept recently uh, from the whole uh, the cop leak, the blue leaks thing, if anyone's familiar with that. I guess you could Google it if you're not. Uh, but there's all these documents that were leaked. And recently, the DHS, this was probably in May that it actually came out. The DHS actually is very concerned about widespread uh, mask wearing 
because they're concerned that it's going to thwart their facial recognition plans. And I think that's a really great reason to wear a mask. I'd like to see people do this all the time. And I actually mentioned this. I was on uh, a couple of different podcasts where I was pointing out what I like about the hypocrisy. Sometimes it's fun to kind of sit back and kind of laugh at the hypocrisy of the state and their supporters on all different sides. Uh, And there's 17, maybe 16 states, somewhere around this number, number of states with varying degrees of bans uncovering your face in public places like here in California, in Georgia, in Louisiana and elsewhere. So if you have a ban on it, supposedly to evade detection, and then you're they're requiring it at the same time, it creates an interesting conflict. And I can't remember what state it was. I think it was the Georgia or Louisiana. The governor literally had to come out and say say things like, okay, well, we're if you, we're requiring you to wear a mask for this pandemic, we're not going to be enforcing this law, banning you from hiding from law enforcement. So it's pretty interesting. It is interesting. All right. So I want to sort of get into some of my ideas here. And I want to start with a possibly fairly incendiary idea, which is, is the reaction to COVID designed to oust Trump? No, I mean, I don't think so. I think Trump is a monster. Actually, I think anybody who would be willing to be the head dude of the largest empire in world history is a horrible person. And you're saying that regardless of party affiliation? Oh, yeah, because they all suck. Yeah. um, I always get the the right or wrong. It's not uh, Mankin. It's either Lewis or Tolkien who says something to the fact that uh, leader of men is no job for anybody. Oh, um, interesting, interesting. I mean, it's it's it, he he was far more eloquent than I. Yeah, yeah. And but same I, I've rewarded it that anybody who wants the job of president should be automatically disqualified from having it. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Actually, you know, I was actually tweeting about something like this recently, and he, like. Of course, there's probably going to, I wouldn't think on your podcast, but there would in general in this type of conversation be like, what, you think Trump is garbage? You must like Joe Biden. What do you want, Joe Biden? No, Joe Biden is also garbage, police state warmonger, piece of trash, just like the current guy. But this, my thought was, if anything, maybe Trump has been a mole all along. Who could be so bad to get anyone excited about voting for Joe Biden other than Donald Trump? I mean- Biden has got to be the worst candidate in existence, maybe worse than the previous one, because he doesn't have the gender advantage that Hillary did. Well, to her, I don't want to say this, but to her credit, at least she was <laughs> we better just edit that out. No, <laughs> I'll say at least she was coherent. She can make a sentence. Yeah, I mean. But, you know, her and they're basically the same person as far as policy goes. And that's not that's not also saying that. No, it's terrible. They're police state, surveillance state, warmongering drug warriors that no one should support. And then if you look at someone like Donald Trump, his his administration, two years in a row, two and a half, technically two years in a row, have has enforced more gun control on the federal level than any administration in history. And it's not even close. Like he makes Obama look decent in comparison. And Obama was horrible. And that doesn't mean that necessarily Obama didn't want to do more, but I think happens though. And you see this, I think in both directions, at least in Washington, is 
a lot of times when the left is in charge or the Democrats are in charge, Republicans act start pretending to act like more small government people and they do things to oppose expansion of things like national. I mean, when was the last time you heard a Republican in Washington, D.C. complaining about the national debt? I started hearing Ted Cruz talking about it just in the last few weeks. So I'm assuming because that was a big issue for him when Obama was in office and he just kept his his big mouth shut the last couple of years. I'm assuming he's thinking that the writing is on the wall for the Republican administration or he's just playing it safe. I don't know who's going to win. I can't predict that, but maybe he's starting to play it safe and he's got to have a track record of opposing national debt while uh, while he's probably been there voting for a lot of stuff. He, I mean, this is a guy literally not just to pick on Ted, but I can't stand that guy. Ted Cruz was willing to filibuster over Obamacare. He was willing. He's like, let's just not do anything. We cannot let Obamacare go through. Of course, as soon as he starts getting challenged under the next administration from the other direction, he votes in favor of a funding bill that continues the funding of Obamacare. So these people can't be trusted. And and I'm being really hard on Republicans because they're awful, but I can be just as hard on on Democrats because they're also awful. Michael, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. One of the best ways to learn to cook or bake is to cook or bake. Driving a car is the same. You can read and read, but at some point, you have to do. Speaking a foreign language is the same thing. You can study those terrible manuals, but at some point, you have to open your mouth and speak a foreign language. Learn by doing with Rocket Languages. Rocket Languages uses real-world conversations to teach you the most important grammar and vocabulary. If you travel for work or for pleasure, Rocket Languages will also teach you to write your new language. Writing languages helps reinforce your new language, plus you can leave your sweetie a romantic note. Enter culinarylibertarian.com slash rocket language into your browser, which will take you to my blog page for Rocket Languages. Click on the language you wish to learn or just visit the main page. Use the free trial to see if Rocket Language is right for you. Then get started in just 60 seconds. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash rocket language for my blog page and from there, visit the Rocket Language main page. Find out why almost 2,700 people gave Rocket Language a five-star review. Colonnerlibertarian.com slash Rocket Language to start your language adventure today or click the banner on the show notes page. Now let's get back into the show. I think uh, Woods has made the, the distinction that the in the end, the real big difference between the two parties is 0.3% of a tax raise or a tax decrease. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're arguing a, for the exact same thing. That's a great way to put it. But really, they're, they, they, they put on a nice show, but they all want the same thing. They just want to preserve their jobs, vote themselves pay raises, work as little work, <laughs> show wow. up to the office as little as possible. First and, you defend Hillary and now you're saying politicians are working? I don't know. Mm. This might be one of those Thanksgiving dinners. Could be. All right. So aside from the current goings-ons, and there's lots of them going on that you're watching at the TAC, 
I want your, because you seem to have a pretty good handle on culture. What, I mean. Well, maybe you don't. What do you, and I'm going to butcher this word, the millennialization of culture. I have no insight whatsoever. <laughs> like, literally none. I'm probably so, uh, like, I live in a bit of a bubble here in downtown Los Angeles. So what I think is culture, probably a lot of people just are think it's from another world. So I, I honestly don't know. Now that is an answer I couldn't have anticipated. <laughs> really? I'm sorry. I well, don't, that's okay. You I just me a little dumbstruck, so now I got to think about what to do. I feel like as you know, and I'm I'm in my late 40s. I'm 47 now. You know, I'll say back to my younger years. I used to think I was really on top of things. I was a nightclub promoter and a DJ, and I was that cool guy who had like an old car. Whatever. I mean. I just feel so out of the loop sometimes. And I think I'm probably more in the loop than a lot of people. I just, I had to have a conversation with my nephews recently trying to understand some popular terms. Like I can't figure out the application of the word yeet, but I keep hearing it when I turn on YouTube, trying to understand the lifestyle of my nephews who are in their late teens and early twenties. So I don't even know what that word is. Exactly. Matter, We're going to have to YouTube it? it. But I did learn that uh, you use the word T to find out. Uh, you say something to somebody and you say, well, what's the T? Like, what's the inside scoop? You're spilling the T. Uh, these are the types of conversations I have about culture. Well, my 15-year-old daughter is, well, it's a whole the the end of so we did the schooling from home at the end of last year uh -huh. and we'll do schooling from home this year so there won't be any of that but even if she were in the building she wouldn't necessarily be the first person with all of the vocab right her generation which is perfectly fine with me that's super well, cool so actually with it is it's okay I don't mind uh, well then just if you can and with your misgivings or your your, your bubbleness of the culture. What do you see? What is your impression of the millennial generation? I don't know. See, I, I just, it's hard for me on a question like that because then my brain starts thinking back to Ron Paul and I hear Ron Paul responding to people calling him a racist, right? And that, I know you're not saying that. And he was always like, well, racism is a collective way of thinking. I can't think of people in groups. I have to think of people in individuals. And I just have heard that so many times in my head. I feel like Ron Paul is like my guardian angel reminding people to think of everybody as individuals. And I don't know if I have any comments on any, any generation as a whole. I mean, I meet a lot of people who are complete idiots and completely brilliant from all different age groups. The only one where I'm going to make actually, uh, as far as like culture, I just, I'm actually the people that I've met in the next generation is that Z. And maybe it's because I'm I, meeting them through my honestly, nephews. Who I are, don't know. I think it's Gen Z Zoomers uh, that I meet through my nephews who are both really good people. Every time I meet somebody from that generation, they're very thoughtful and very interested in learning. And I think of myself as a 19 or 20 year old and I was a total jerk. And maybe I'm just comparing on that curve. But I keep meeting actually genuine, nice, hungry for information people that are open 
uh, about learning stuff. So uh, to me, that that's my best kind of feedback. I don't know about millennials. No, no. I, I, I actually I, I think that that's a really uh, an, an answer I hadn't expected, but I like the. Evaluate people. The Ron Paul, I don't do groups. I'll take you as you are individually because as a, the, the group doesn't reflect all the people in the group. And yeah, I mean, you can – right. I mean, and that's what I think his whole point was when they were going after him. This was – I don't know if this was the 2008 or the 2012 campaign for president – but they just kept going after him. He's like, look, racism is terrible because rate and racism is bad. It's a collectivist ideology. And if you think of people in groups, it's going to lead people to have this type of approach about something at some point. They're going to think of an entire group as bad. But if you think as an individualist, as a libertarian, he probably would have said, if you think like that and you think of each person by their own actions, then that's going to change your entire perspective on how you approach these things. And I think the same thing could be done as far as thinking about prohibition. People on whatever side of the spectrum, they want prohibition on something. Some people want prohibition on a plant. Some people want prohibition on a, a firearm or a self-defense tool. And they want that prohibition because they're not thinking about people as individuals in what they do. They think about things in a collectivist kind of a mindset. Oh, well, if there are guns, then, well, they'll wrongly think there'll be more crime or something rather than the other way around. But instead of thinking like, it's not what you own, it's not what you think, it's what you do, what your actions that count. And uh, that's uh, very pervasive, and I think, in our society. I agree with that. So I was just thinking that there's a possible, and this, <clears throat> I was going for incendiary to begin with. I think I just found it. <laughs> nice. No, here it is. The and, and this goes to the Tenth Amendment Center's working with people or groups on a particular issue. So let's say there's this person who is right on line with abolishing the war on drugs and is racist. Man. So now you have boy, there's this Is there this such person a person? Not, I don't know. Conceivably that we have what, three hundred and thirty million people in the in the I guess so. Probably. I mean, when you say they're a racist, could be, but I don't know. But I'm not. I'm not define looking. racist. Uh, some of the things black people are bad. I don't know what bad means. I probably wouldn't work with them. I'm not they, putting you on the spot. I'm just saying that this is this is one of those examples where you and the ACLU, as a group, they from a liberty position, as a group, the ACLU has some hits. And they have some misses. I think they have more misses than hits by far. I think that's probably true. But that, but still, with this less than favorable resume from a liberty standpoint, you're still going to them saying, you know what? You've missed a lot as far as I'm concerned, but you're really good on this issue that I'm really interested about. Yep. So let's partner up and work really hard with your good resources and my good resources to advance liberty in this very specific direction. And they probably wouldn't even say advance liberty. They probably wouldn't, but I don't no. but who cares? Exactly. Who cares what they exactly. say? Exactly. The agreement well, is getting getting the accord regardless of the labels and the language. Yeah. I mean, in general, I'm on board with that. I, if I don't find the person repulsive, 
I'll probably want to interact with them and work with them on something. Does that mean if so? This is also a way that I think some people will use as a tool to poison efforts. Uh, maybe they'll find someone who is really just a disgusting human being for whatever reason. And they'll make that person uh, or fund their efforts being really prominent against war or against the drug war or something like that. And they say, well, you're also against the war on drugs. And this person here is just terrible on all these things. So then why would you want to be against the war on drugs if this is representative of that type of a person? I think it can kind of go both directions. For me, again, I'm looking at it as an individual case by case basis. In general, I will work with people across the spectrum, but even people I've actually, there's been people who are actually members of the 10th Amendment Center. And then after I've had a chance to interact with them, I just don't like them. I don't like them. I think they're just awful people. And I'll tell them, look, I cannot have a conversation with you. And in fact, I'm going to refund your membership money. Wow. I don't. Oh yeah, I will absolutely do that. I don't want to take money from people that I think are just reprehensible human beings. Now, that sounds like a well-defined and supported first principle. Is it? I mean, I guess it's just it's just bound at some point for, for me at some point, like because if I was just doing this as kind of a side activism, maybe a couple hours a week, that'd be one thing. But this is my job. I'm this is. 50 to 90 hours a week, depending on the time of year. So I also have to love what I do. And if I'm having to drag myself into a phone conversation or a podcast interview, for example, I'm probably going to say no every single time because I still have to love what I'm going to do. And there's so much available for me to do that if someone asked me, so my partner, Sarah, she'll ask me, oh, what do you got going on today? Well, she doesn't really do it anymore because my task list is literally so long that I never know what I'm doing outside of some basics until I sit down and I go through my task list for the day and I remove the things that are impossible to get done. There's just It's just so much that's, I mean, again, we're talking about resisting, nullifying the empire, the largest in the history of the world in comparison. And I just want to throw this out there. I know we're all supposed to be afraid of the Chinese these days. And yeah, the Chinese are some kind of a, they're not Damn, really communist anymore. But if you think about it, the Chinese national, the national debt of China is a little bit less than half of that of the land of the free, the United States of America. And they have like four times the population. So if that's the people that I'm supposed to be afraid of, they're actually fiscally responsible in comparison. I mean, maybe the numbers are skewed. Yeah, half a globe away. Or TikTok or whatever I'm supposed to be afraid of. I think these are all distractions. I mean, we're literally talking about the largest government in the history of the planet by far. It's like not even close. And as far as defense or military spending, I hate calling, again, back to Ron Paul, he, Daniel McAdams and so many others for so many years have been saying, you know, this is not defense spending. This is militarism. This is military spending. We're talking about the military budgets. They're always talking about how, oh, we got to rebuild this military. When the U.S. government spends more on military than the next seven to eight countries combined, more than China, Russia, Germany, and the rest of them combined. And then I also learned 
sometime over the last year that if you take the next 140 countries combined, the U.S. military budget is about the same size or close to being larger than all of them combined. So there's always something to do. And I guess the the full circle here is if I personally just don't want to interact with someone, I, I've got somebody else I can connect with. Right. Well, I think it probably is a first principle, and I. But it's I. I, I don't want to stand this too long, but I think that that just. It's interesting, though. I I mean having. Having the position that I prefer my character over your currency, I think is a a good place to hang your hat. Okay, and I mean, and I'm identifying it for you. I'm giving it a name or a label, and just I I like it. You know, I never really, my approval, but I, like I never it. really put a lot of thought to it. It's just that at some point, and you know, it's maybe years ago when, and not that we're rolling in cash here, anything like that, but years ago, I literally had to work a side job making $11 an hour just to keep things afloat, plus working all day, every day through the night till two, three in the morning. To just to do the work that I'm doing. So at that time, maybe I would have just sucked in every $5 <laughs> donation possible. And maybe I'm at a luxury place now. This is like first world problems to be like, okay, the bills are covered and we're going a little bit beyond that and working to expand and reach new people, do higher level production and better work and things like that. So we can actually draw more people in and educate them. And at this point, I'm like, man, if it's somebody's five dollar a month who's just horrible, yeah, I I, can, I feel I feel happy being able to say no sometimes. I gotta have some boundaries. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, your friend and my digital mentor, so to speak, is uh, Brian McClanahan, who has the podcast. And Brian's a mentor. Uh, that's awesome. Well, digitally, he doesn't know that. Yeah, that's cool. Hi, Brian. Well, hopefully, he does now. <laughs> He might. Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Uh, he had uh, recently a episode about what he called the Karen phenomena, which is kind of everyone's experiencing it, Karens or Kens. And his particular podcast episode was making the argument that Karen is an extension of the Puritan New Englander, which really turns out to be the Yankee, which will make a lot of people really upset. Uh, that's, okay. that's a very uh, Brian McClanahan kind of a point. It there. is. Uh, Paul He's Godfrey, good at it, though. He is. He's very good. Paul Gottfried has chimed in discussing cultural Marxism, um, which you, as, as in your former life, having some affiliation with communism and Marxism, may have at least an opinion about this. So what... At least one thing is quite plain, and that is this, that there's no staples button for 2020. So what's ahead? Do we undo Lincoln's union and return to the several states? This is a Tenth Amendment job. Is it? I think so. I mean, undo the union? If there's any indication that there's any effort that's anywhere even remotely close to that, I would be very interested. I just don't think that there really is anything that is even remotely close 
I'm all on board. I definitely am all 100% on board with decentralization in any way possible. I just believe, and I put this into practice in my work, however many hours, dozens of hours a week I work on this, is that decentralization is most effective when you do it by example. And the way you do it by example is on an issue by issue basis. This is going to be the same talking point over and over and over. And one example I can give on this is weed. Years ago, when I first started doing this type of work, I would talk to, you know, Southern California, some, you're going to find a lot of people who are open to the idea in the mid to late 2000s on legalizing cannabis beyond what was going on at that point. But when I would talk to more Republican or right-leaning groups, they would get pissed off, literally pissed off. How is that a Tenth Amendment thing? This is a very common response. And over the years, that has diminished to virtually nothing. Now, this is anecdotal, but I think we can also see in practice how this has also played out. For example, Oklahoma, two summers ago, had a huge, easy-to-pass margin when the people, it was like June of 2018, I think, they passed the broadest medical marijuana law in history, much broader than what was passed under the uh, Compassionate Use Act here in California in the mid-90s. So it just shows how people learn over time. The argument from the right was always... Well, if you legalize marijuana, this is funding terrorism. The world's going to end. There's going to be people dying in the streets. It's the same arguments that we hear from the left. If you don't have government-controlled health care or single-payer or Obamacare, whatever their flavor of the day may be, people are going to be dying in the streets. And then at least from the right when it comes to, to weed, over the years, we've learned more and more, or we've seen more and more of them recognizing, wow, there's a lot of people getting a lot of money, getting really rich from this. And, you know, my neighbor had it. My grandmother used it for her uh, for her cancer, I'm a friend of a friend. And over time, that general knee-jerk reaction kind of melts away. Now, it's not totally gone. It's not even close to totally gone. But it's gone enough to the point where the reddest of the red states, the Utahs, the Oklahomas of the world, are legalizing, at least for limited purposes, a plant that they never would have legalized years earlier. I've been making the case to gun rights groups for a long time to do the same type of thing the other direction. You just have to lead by example. Eventually, people learn that all of their fear mongering is just garbage. It's a lie. Well, not always. But we have, we hope that we can teach them by example. So I don't know where was I going with this. You're going to have to clue me in. Well, oh, what's the issue? Is it going to be secession? Well, so I think the best way forward is to continue on that path, issue by issue. Oh, okay. Well, if the government isn't going to, if the central government isn't going to run healthcare, how can you do anything? If the central government isn't going to. Uh, you know, be in protecting you from police, then how are you going to do anything? If there, if the central government doesn't come and protect you from protesters, how are you going to do anything? There's always a different way. There's a decentralized approach. Like Dice's article at, or he did a short blog on Portland and the protests yeah, and the feds coming in. And I don't know, maybe you want to link it or something, but he had a really good point. He's like, look, under the constitution, the feds shouldn't be there. 
get them the hell out of there. And, you know, I don't think Jeff used that language, but get them out no. of there. <laughs> get them out of there. They shouldn't be there. Let's just be clear about that. And on the other hand, if the people locally want to make bad choices about how they do things, that's their choice until people start having the mentality that people can make good or bad choices. They can make choices that are different than you or I in their own area. And it's none of my business. Like it is literally none of my business. If South Carolina wants to have a totally different approach to life under their government than we do here in California and vice versa. Until we have that type of mentality, I think it is a more of a it is a it's a revolution in thought. And that's how John Adams actually put it. It's like a 1810-ish letter to a guy named Hezekiah Niles. He basically said, you know, the real American Revolution wasn't the war. The war of of separation, that long bloody war that they had, that was the culmination of the revolution, according to him at least. And he said the revolution was a change over decades of the religious, political, economic, the sentiments of the people. And that is the real American revolution. And I think that's at least if you look at the, the Ron Paul movement, the effort that he was so instrumental in leading, he put his neck out on the line for this, is really, it was, this is the beginning part of a new intellectual revolution. It isn't a violent one. It isn't you know, like, I think it has got to be a lot of change in thought. And whether we're talking about people from the left or the right, when we hear about things that we don't like in another area, we spend our time focusing on that other area rather than fixing our own. Question probably was to undo Lincoln's union. Well, yes, uh, I, I am on board of, with that. Yes. Well, so there's a few things going on here. Most people don't have any understanding that before there was the union, it was the several states. And they don't know what that means. Okay. Then there's, so we have the Karens and the Kens who are committed to making it their business. Yes. What you're doing. Yes. And that's at a local level. That's the neighbor. That's the grocery store. That's the... That's the coffee in the face of the guy on the boardwalk, you know, by the whatever. So the and there's um, Pete has Pete can I can't say his name um, has a podcast. I haven't heard it yet about how the left is always right. They always win. Brian has one about the same thing. For some reason, there is a tenaciousness, like a snapping turtle. They just don't let go, and once they get what they want from that bite, they take another one. Yeah, I mean, and what's interesting from the right is the right spends most of their time complaining about that rather than adopting the tactics that work. Yes, then and, and all they do is complain, and then pretty soon they're helping the turtle. So, so the part of, and I don't even know how this starts, part of the education is educating the people that the union isn't in your best interest. And it, you know, it is, it is the empire, you know. Well, that's the, thinking very big picture. But, it, but, but so, and I'm going to now, yes, it is very big picture. And I'm going to turn it around and go exactly the opposite way with mentioning a Murray Rothbard quote about how if you can concede that the single government isn't necessary and Canada and the U.S. can be two countries on the same piece of land, yeah. then you can make it so 
that the individual, I mean, I'm, I'm dripping heads. So you have the, the, the country. Well, now, why don't we have 50 states? Well, if you have 50 states, you can have townships getting down to the individual. Of course. So that's not a good retelling. Murray did it a lot better than I did. But the next point and is- And Hoppe have- made a very interesting case like that in this uh, in a speech, How to Fight the Modern State, from late 90s for the Mises Institute, an event in Newport Beach, California. He was basically talking about like, oh, you have to think of it in terms of like, oh, 1,000 city-states. Stop helping in the enforcement of each and every federal law on a local level. That's the, that's the case that he made strategically. And I know he's a pretty controversial character, but this is the same type of thought. But the idea of actually every man as an island or every human as an island being able to be their own kind of nation state, their own sovereignty, I don't think anything's even remotely close to that. Like, like not even close to that no. happening. But if our it's goal just... is individual liberty, personal sovereignty, there are so many steps that we can take to, again, brick by brick, build that foundation. Is it something as simple as being supportive of cryptocurrency, unconfiscatable f- financial instruments, or potentially unconfiscatable? That's the hope. I think that's yeah. a very positive approach to things. I'm fully on board with that. I mean, that's not something that's like a lot of the constitutional types would be like, what about gold and silver? Well, of course, gold and silver. This is like old, original money, right? But, but if there's a to make it illegal, they're threatening to confiscate it. It, it is confiscatable, certainly, because you still have to have it stored someplace. So mm-hmm. in a way, and I'm actually exploring for myself and for our, for the Tenth Amendment Center website, TenthAmendmentCenter.com, of course, <laughs> I'm exploring for the website. There are now ways to actually put a website on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, you can get a dot crypto, unconfiscatable, close to domain wow. name. Uh, and then you can put a static website on the blockchain. I don't know how much that costs, but it can be done. So you, there's actually a way to export, like I run the website in WordPress. You can export that as a static file, and then that static file goes up to a distributed or decentralized network, and it's pretty pretty darn impossible, at least at this phase of the game, to be able to take that down. I haven't built that yet. It's not wouldn't be very accessible, but that's the type of thought process that I'm going. We have to take kind of individual responsibility to protect ourselves from the state. Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, they solely, well, almost solely focus on issues related to surveillance. And I do a lot of surveillance work. Meharry does a lot of surveillance work as well for 10th Amendment Center. So I'm really kind of in that loop. But EFF had something and it started making me think about things like this. They have something called the Surveillance Self-Defense Guide, ssd.eff.org, I think. And all these different ways to identify potential surveillance threats and ways that you can help diminish that on your own without relying on some other government to protect you. And I think that's really the approach. And it should be actually, I would think, very appealing to agorists and caps, libertarians of all stripes, because we're taking our own personal responsibility for our own self-defense, whether it's the self-defense of our money, of our property in person, of our privacy, whatever it may be. So it could be cryptocurrency. It could be learning better encryption, using better tools to communicate, surf the web, using Tor, Onion, things like that. All of these things, I think, are kind of a long-term, kind of bigger picture vision of how we can show liberty actually works because 
of course, the argument against all these things is that only criminals want to do these things. But as more and more people, as adoption becomes larger, and it's your mom, your neighbor, whoever using these types of tools, then it's a lot harder for the propagandists to attack them. And it also becomes harder for the kind of the, the Karens and the Kens to demand that you change, because if someone can't actually take things away from you, they have far less leverage. Let's pause a bit for a word from the Tasting Anarchy podcast, folks. Hey, everyone. Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Well, Michael, you've already told us in the beginning that you're on the SPLC's top 30 criminals because you want to oppose the empire. So plainly, you have something nefarious planned. Let me tell you, uh, TSA trips are not a pleasant experience. (laughs) (laughs) And they are not a pleasant experience grading on a curve Mm. far worse than probably a lot of other people's experiences at the TSA. (laughs) Um, It's part of the gig. All right. I wanted to mention just if you had an observation about cancel culture, and that's, this is probably actually a whole episode and maybe we'll come back and do that. It's been around a long time. It's, you know what? It actually has. And, And it's interesting that it has been around a long time. I just sort of, on my last episode, I did just lots and lots of rabbit holes and found out lots of things I didn't know about. Didn't get to use them all in the episode, but um, the the left seems very and they're the most visible. I don't think they're alone in this. I think the right does it, but they're not. They're not as vocal. But the left makes themselves very well known, and generally they don't let alone. So they landed on Trader Joe's, kind of like flies landing on a carcass, and then they want to see what they can find. What happened with Trader, Trader Joe's? Well, they were really upset that Trader Joe's also has Trader Ming's and Trader Jose and something else, because they're so Trader Ming's would be the Asian selection of the frozen dinners and things you can buy. Um, uh, Trader Jose is the Mexican stuff. Uh, they have a couple of other ones. It's I always Does Trader thought Joe's actually carry anything that really qualifies as Mexican food. I don't know, but they're <laughs> the the names alone. No, I, I know, the, I know. I'm just I like. I mean, it was it was playful. I took it entirely as fun, and the CEO Trader Joe's finally said, "You know what? Sit down. We ain't playing," and they're not changing anything, which is brilliant. I'm so happy. <laughs> that Trader Joe's found a spine because I didn't expect them to because they're pretty left. Um, so now the left is going to go find somebody else to be upset about. Um, this appetite for destruction, which is what it seems like, is insatiable. How did it, I mean, this is asking a big question. How do you think it got to this point and what is it they wish to achieve? I have no idea, and I have no idea, but it's been around a long time. I just gave an example on my own podcast recently about how, eh, if we want to just kind of be a little geeky, back when they were proposing ratification of the Constitution, 
Pennsylvania was one of the first states that was considering voting on this, and the supporters of the Constitution kind of railroaded it through. And they actually refused to allow anyone to print opposition views in any papers. They finally found people to actually do that. And the cancel culture approach, almost the exact same way, came in and basically got the guy, the editor of the one newspaper, fired. And it was so bad that the mentality was and this you can read through letters from various supporters of the constitution from the time they were so concerned about it how it was ramrodded just pushed through in Pennsylvania that it gave a lot of the opposition skepticism and the skepticism actually threatened the overall ratification process and they knew this and they were like uh-oh we got to stay away from this kind of garbage and really, I think the lesson for today, this is probably my only insight, the lesson for today is that there isn't fear of that response. If you're really concerned about that response, it's very likely that you're really outnumbered or very poorly organized. And I'm not sure what the answer to that is, whether it's one or the other or both, but if it is just being totally outnumbered and overwhelmed, I think the strategies need to be different. I'm not sure what they are. But if you are literally looking at fighting an unwinnable battle, then you have to think of a different approach. I'm not sure what that is. But maybe there's just bad uh, responses. I yeah, don't know. Well, I don't know. But the, the concern was, was like, look, there are enough people who are, let's say, up in arms about our cancel culture approach in Pennsylvania on ratification of the Constitution, that we have to change that. So if there are this many people who are upset about it, then I would say, and I'm no expert in this particular thing. I mean, I guess if I spend some time, I'm pretty good at strategy on getting stuff done like this and organizing. There's probably an approach that is not being, uh, being used at all. I don't know what it is, though. I think your observation about being ill-prepared for the fight is correct, but I also think that... Bringing a those, knife to a gun battle, maybe? Yeah, those those starting the fight are exceptionally well-prepared. Well, the, well, the left, let's talk collectivist here. The left is incredibly good at grassroots activism and strategy. They are good, whether it's literally just... If it's decentralized or if it's funded from the top, they are very, very good at this. And I often talk about immigration sanctuary cities as being an incredible example of how to get stuff done for liberty. Here we are talking about 300 plus localities that are flat out defined the guy who's literally threatening to shut them down, arrest mayors, take away funding, and they're just holding fast. And they're winning very easily. It's like not even close. So why not look at these strategies that are being used by the left? I've actually spent a lot of time doing this. Look at the strategies, find out how they're doing it, and start applying it for things that you believe in. I mean, maybe you do believe in the same thing, but who knows? I mean, it were that's really when I'm talking nullification strategy, we're talking about the same type of thing, and we're getting stuff done. I mean, let's go back to our buddy Tom, Tom Woods at one point, and I just I want to plug myself a little bit here. I hate <laughs> I'm not one to brag, but at some point, this is actually one of the coolest things that I heard totally 
unexpected. At one point, Tom was doing some kind of conversation. I wasn't even on the show or whatever, but he basically said, Bolden and the Tenth Amendment Center has done more than anyone in the world to advance the venerable Jeffersonian principle of nullification. We do this on a very low budget, but it's because we take these types of things, we learn from the people who are good at doing stuff, and we apply it to things that we believe in. And I think there's very little of that from the, quote, the right, whether it's the right end of the libertarian spectrum or the right end of the overall populace is very little. And in fact, I often get told from people on the right, like, no, that's a tool of the left. I don't want to do that. They don't want to be seen as a leftist. so They won't do this, this or this. I don't want to work with these people because they're a leftist. And I think that knee jerk reaction is actually really detrimental to liberty. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to agree. <laughs> Definitely not. It's, well, I, think, I, de- I, think, I know I'm an outlier in this type of a viewpoint in many communities, but well, I, think, I, think, uh, I think it's important if we're thinking strategy, and I always think strategy. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a historian. I'm not a scholar. I am an incredibly good strategist, and I've been able through strategy and through observation and putting things into practice, have been able to build at least my organization to the point where we get things done for liberty, to the point where the Southern Poverty Law Center thinks I am one of three 30 leading threats in the country. So that, to me, that says something. So I spend a lot of time looking at the strategy, and I don't think enough people do. It's very easy to complain about the left. It's very easy to complain about the right and point out how terrible they are because they are all horrible, right? On one thing or another, they're all horrible, if not a lot of things. But there's not enough time and I, uh, spent on the strategy. Like, why are they so horrible? Because they get the things that they want done, done. Otherwise, they wouldn't be scary or evil or bad at all. It'd just be some dude in a basement, keyboard warrioring. And like, we can laugh at them, but we don't laugh at them because they're dangerous. They're dangerous because there's a lot of them and they're good at what they do. Well, so there's, there's two things there. I think they go together. One, if you are knee jerking as your reaction, then you're not strategizing. <laughs> right. You're responding emotionally. Strategizing is responding at least with a considered response. Sometimes. Probably passionate, but at least enough of a pause to instead of just punching back and I think a lot of what of arguments aren't arguments as much as they're just <laughs> the mighty python bit oh man an argument no you didn't it's just it's it's not argumentation it's just it's banter so I but the whole thing plays out We'll use the phrase writ large. And Woods years ago made this great point about elections. Elections in this country have turned into a low-grade civil war with one side trying to destroy the other, taking over the whole the whole system. And it's back and forth and back and forth. And I think it's only gotten significantly worse. And it keeps reminding me of George Washington's farewell address where he warned about what he called the alternate domination of one faction over another. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, but I, I probably have it pretty close. Sharpened by the spirit of revenge, which is part of the whole party system, two-party system. He says, just back and forth. They're just trying to get back at each other, one side over the other, 
back and forth and back and forth using revenge is in and of itself what he called a frightful despotism. He says this is going to lead to people like seeking refuge in an all-powerful leader over time. I mean, if we aren't there all right now, it's pretty close. It's pretty close, right? And I don't know if that was prophetic. Maybe he saw himself as the head of a faction due to things well, like the Whiskey they, Rebellion. They had, I don't know, but it certainly was factions. a good there were There were the Washingtonians and the Hamiltonians yes, and the Jeffersonians yes. and the Adamses, whatever they were. So they there were factions. There they always that. have been factions. That never went away. We no. have that now. We just have different names for them. Yes. And now factions aren't always necessarily parties, political parties. Factions are, are, it could be any kind of organic or non-organic number of groups that are trying to basically kind of take over and dominate. Neo this and Neo that. Yes. They're just, they're, they have different names, but it's the same idea. Yeah. And you could call the, the cancel culture. This is a faction trying to take on these businesses. That's a faction. Yeah. But when those factions get so large and so powerful that it literally is a back and forth, a fight, a war, a low-grade civil war, and then, of course, the revenge end of it, that becomes a very dangerous situation. Because when you get motivated by that revenge and, like, we got to get back at the other guy type of thing, then a lot of people end up turning a blind eye to more and more centralization of power. And at least that's what Washington warned us, warned us of. And whatever you may think of, of George Washington, I mean, if we're talking about that guy versus any president in our lifetime, he was the huh. smallest government guy I could ever dream of in comparison. Now, at the time, he was a right. relatively big government guy. Uh, but there's no one alive that was ever even close to this type of thing. And it's a pretty good warning. No, it was a very good warning. Uh, your comment, and I, I, I have an example where the decentralization actually thrives. And it, it's unfortunately <laughs> in the Abbeville Institute. Um, Why is that unfortunate? They are always really kind. Well, because, no, it's not unfortunate that it's there. It's unfortunate that it's not more than just there. Okay. Uh, And so I actually have a few questions that I'm not going to ask because it's going to take us into probably, well, much, much longer. Um, And and I want to make sure that maybe we'll have you on again. I want to get into these because they're not going away. Um, It's a conversation about Donald Livingston and about some of his work with Hume and some of the, what he sees, and he's probably right about the loss. This is a guy who's probably also much smarter than I am, Donald. No, well, I I can assure you that Donald exceeds my capacity. I know for a fact. I finally got to meet him for the first time sometime last year. He was kind enough to invite me to to speak in an event uh, that they hosted in Dallas about a year or so ago. And uh, yeah, they were just amazing. And I mean, I definitely did not fit the mold of your normal Abbeville Institute attendee or speaker, but everyone was just, well, 98% of the people was so like, welcomed me with open arms. It was a really, really great time. That's very, very cool. Makes me happy. But you know, that's the Southern tradition. Is that? I guess so. I'm, it's all relatively yeah. new to me. Outside of listening to Brian, it's all pretty new to me. 
Well, having lived in Florida for many years, there is a, it is true that there is a hospitality to the South. Now, they, what they say to your face, what they say behind your back, may not be the same thing, but at least there oh, is. Oh, it sounds like L.A. I've never been there. I don't know. Oh, LA. So there's always the, the comparison between L.A. people and New Yorkers. New Yorkers will tell you to, you know, no. F off to your face. Yes. L.A. people give you a, a handshake, say, hey, we should have that meeting. And then they'll call you a name behind your back. I'm I'm familiar with New Yorkers. I, I like New the New York style to be honest with you. I well, prefer the in your face. Yeah, there's it's it, it has its own challenges, but. It, it suits my personality. Right? <laughs> I'm walking here. Yeah, it definitely fits mine. And I always like a good cannoli, so. Oh, man. I can't I, get a yeah. good cannoli on the West Coast. Maybe San Francisco, but. Probably. Well, there's no reason you can't. You should, it, that doesn't make any sense. But anyway, it's another conversation. I, by the way. Is that, I feel like I, all conversations are a cannoli conversation at some point. They could be, but I, 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 oh, I, I've just, I've, this I've is the culinary libertarian podcast. Yeah. Right? And I've got, I've, I've made, I've got cannoli down, buddy. Let me tell you what. Oh, nice. I made them at a place, um, last, uh, in New Jersey, it was a little bakery in Somerville, which has some revolutionary history. And, uh, we were able in New Jersey to get sheep's milk ricotta, which ain't cheap, mm. but the difference between sheep's milk ricotta and, the good stuff you can get in the grocery store is like driving a Pinto or driving a Maserati. Well, you know, and I, I've never had sheep's milk ricotta that I'm aware oh, of. Man. But in general, when it comes to cheese, my, well, other than the fact that I have a, a dairy allergy, but I'll still, I'll still indulge once in a while. But I can eat sheep's milk cheese, no problem. And I found that it is the most, especially like a smoked sheep's cheese is the most amazing thing it's expensive some, yes well there's some really really top-notch i don't know if you eat goat but goat and sheep's milk cheeses there's some really good stuff oh, yeah. out there see now i i i we we can't do this without getting me hungry <laughs> well on our side of the world it's getting close to dinner time right? so so you need to go you know cut a couple of avocado trees down and you know, go <laughs> Go kill some kale and go hunt for <laughs> what some carrots and. I've been making bone broth lately, so I'm trying to. Have you really? I'm, I'm trying to get in touch with my inner carnivore. Nice. Well, I approve. Um, I've done okay. I've done two chickens, and then I did. Um, I did an oso buco for the first time, and then get I got out of town. yeah, and I got some extra, kind of uh, some kind of marrow bone bones that I just like let simmer for about 12 hours the next day but the also also buco was amazing it's one of my favorite things that and, and a lamb shank oh i my. did this with beef i know you really should do it with lamb but i did it with beef does it even Feel qualify actually. as also buco if it's uh well also buco only means bone with a hole that's all that oh is. i didn't know that okay <laughs> so it could be you could Technically, it was definitely it could be it was beef. a fish steak and still qualify as asabuco. Yes, I know you hardliners are going to give me whatever. If it has a bone and a hole in it, technically it meets the goal. Okay, that works for me. So I recently moved to um, a new apartment, uh, same neighborhood, but new apartment. And we have more room now. 
which is nice. One of the benefits of the pandemic has been pandemic rental pricing. Our lease just happened to come up in June. So yeah, we basically got almost twice the square footage for less money, light, slightly less money. Sweet. Yeah. So we now have extra space, which means this amazing uh, Staub Dutch oven that I've had for years that was always kind of just smashed away in some like less than available storage space is now easy to grab. And I'm just using it all the time. I literally just made like a, a tuna casserole and like I just wanted to make a huge batch of food. I'm like, oh, tuna casserole sounds great. Uh, but- All right. Well, so now you have this Dutch oven. One of the things that's easy to do, because it takes time, but no real labor on your part is, and it's on the blog. I'll put a, I'll put a link to this on the show notes page, which will be colonialibertarian.com slash 98, I believe. I have to double check that. Uh, it might be 99. I think it's 99. Wow. Is it 99? It could be. Uh, well, I'll take either. Uh, I think it's 99. Last, yes, it's 99. Sorry. CallingWithLibertarian.com slash 99. Who's 98? Is the, it was me. Solo episode last week. Oh, well, 98 is um, pretty awesome then, too. The No Need Bread. Oh, I think you've mentioned this to me before. And if you've got the Dutch oven, it's so easy to do. It doesn't take a lot of... It's just... It's really good. Oh, and cool. I, it's it's easy. It's delicious. It's great bread. And it's something you can make. You start today, you bake tomorrow, and good to go. Man, I'm in. Especially, I'll send you the link when we're done. Oh, yeah. So you can I'm just find it and in. get to the page and see how it's done. It's and it just I'm and so this is one of those things where you do some reading and find out, wow, what I thought is true is not true at all. They've been making, in fact, in Egypt where bread was pretty much kind of developed and invented, that's all they could do was make no-need bread. And they made giant, looks like 10 or 12 kilo-sized loaves at a time. Oh, wow. Uh, but not freeform loaves. They had special, they had weird things, that like probably terracotta, who knows. Uh, it took the French, actually, the French to figure out how to always knead. the French, right? For food, yes. So they took the French to figure out the kneading part, because you need a table. Uh, and you need glutinous bread, which they didn't. They had sort of, kind of in Egypt, but that's another podcast. But anyway, so no need bread is five thousand years old. Now, it just last ten years or so, it has become popular again, and it's popular for a good reason. So Easy. my Dutch oven is Doesn't six quarts. Are we talking? This is a Perfect. lot of bread. Is that a good size? No, it's good. yeah. It's one loaf of bread. And you want to have. You don't want. Fill the thing. You want to have some room there. You okay. want some convection in the bread. Yeah, it's perfect. Just what you need. All right. I'm excited. Because the next Oso, or is it Oso Buco? You know, the, How do you I, say I, I, I say Oso. Okay, I'm going to go I, with that. I don't claim to be right, and I, I can't stand the pretension <laughs> of people from the Hamptons who've never left the Hamptons <laughs> telling me how to pronounce something in a foreign language. Although Shut my up. dear departed Sicilian grandmother... From my mother's side, she would make sure that I would say things properly when it came to Italian foods. Although, quick funny side story. My sister, when she was uh, maybe like eighth grade or something like that, she's in like a home ec class. She gets an F on this test of just general uh, cooking utensils. My mother, not the type to like make a scene, but she makes a scene with the teacher. And she's like, what do you mean? Not only did she get everything right, 
she got them all. She only knows the words in Italian. So she got all the words correct in another language. But so my grandmother used to correct us on those things. And that's fine. I just don't know if it's also a book. I'm probably thinking, oh, Grandma Chiardo, is it, what am I, is this right or wrong? Well, you know, when you when you stub your toe on something in the middle of the night, that yeah, was exactly. her moving to something that she, the she, that was her moving the stool away. Like, oh, I got you. Okay, Grandma, I'm sorry. It also is where my cannoli addiction came from, so I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, well, they're a little bit more work than Asabuco, but right. worth doing. Right. You need a fryer, um, and actually, <clears throat> the the trick, and I and this is I learned this from an old Sicilian baker. This, the trick for a cannoli shell is not to use the metal tubes that mm. everyone sells. You use wood? You use wood. Yeah, my grandmother used to use wood. Because it doesn't get too hot. Oh, because that's if interesting. The metal gets too hot too fast. The inside burns by the time the outside's done. I have not wood. tried making my own cannoli shells in 20 years. We also had, as, for the, as far as the filling... We had a, our family did a family recipe. It was a custard, not a ricotta cheese, which was very unique. I've never really seen it many places. Only one time I was in um, St. Louis in this neighborhood called The Hill, which is an old Italian neighborhood, lots of old bakeries and delis. And I was at this place called the Missouri Baking Company, and they had this custard. It was like a pink custard with a maraschino cherry on the end of some sort, probably not a maraschino, but some kind of a cherry on the end. I'd never seen this particular recipe in a market, but they had it there. So I wonder if it's kind of a regional Midwest thing. I don't know. If we're going to get you know, deep into cannoli history here. So family, so family recipes, this is something that I think is fantastic. So when there's, there's an interesting little family history there and I, I will, and I've admitted in the podcast, I have a, I have a peculiar culinary conservatism to particularly the French classics. The Scoffier, I'm nearly unyielding on something. Weren't you uh, trained in that, episode. though? I was trained. In and that. isn't that and what they train you? <laughs> well, pretty much. So, of yeah. Course. So, the, so, but... There's a level there of perfectionism is, there, though, at least as a casual a level, outsider. Yes. I see the same thing in uh, Japanese cuisine because I live in a Japanese neighborhood. And I see the same thing in that where it's just very. There, so the similarities are now we're talking classical cuisine for restaurant service. Yes. So there is classical, which is what Escoffier um, documented. When do, and Escoffier was a, a food scientist. You know, the Le Guide Culinaire is the finished version of, some cases, dozens of tests to get it right. Oh, really? And there, there's another book, uh, it's all in French, where he's, you can see his progression. He's trying Peach Melba half a dozen different ways, trying to get everything to work just right. He's, he's experimenting endlessly. So Le Guide Culinaire is the finished version of all those things. So that's the restaurant version when you're, when you're cooking for the king and the royalty, it better be spot on. The Japanese have a, theirs is a little different because when you make sushi, 
you have to stand in the right way or point it the right way and you turn it in a particular way, you're following a feng shui, I'm using the wrong word for it, but there is there is a discipline and a ritual into making sushi that must be followed if you're really making proper sushi. And they now, have the same attitude about their fried chicken, which is out of this world good at sometimes. So at home in Provence or Bordeaux or Alsace, when grandma is cooking, she's cooking classic French food, but not with the exactitude that Escoffia would expect. Oh, okay. But there's still a, so that's where the family tradition, so you may get uh, a cocoa van maybe in nine different ways in nine different regions of France. Uh-huh. That doesn't mean any of them is wrong, but what they have adapted to because that's what they had. So family recipes, if anything, are awesome because there's a history to that that I think deserves the respect. And so people hearing this, basic wait a minute. This is interesting. I would like to learn more about that. I wonder so, if a lot of that regional stuff is gaining in popularity in France these days too like just not i have no idea that's another episode isn't it for for the cooks who really like this stuff and if you i mean i know gordon's one who everyone likes to hate because he's on fox but and and they pay him to be that way gordon has an insatiable interest in learning and and gordon ramsay and and all these little teeny tiny things that are different about something really interest him. And that's the thing that, that's what I like. That's what lights people up about food when they find out that their dish is unique. It's like, wow, cool. We're something special. I like that's Food can be an amazing thing like that when all it is really is doing is we're just feeding people. But you're feeding people history and tradition and story and there can be a real strong bond. Yeah, it brings people together. It definitely can bring for, people for together. These things. And that's if we want so, to full circle that, I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting to when I say, oh, if we only wanted to associate pe- with people who have the same kind of political views, for example, how could we get through a Thanksgiving meal? And you were you were recognizing that too as we were talking. Like you 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 set aside differences in order to be able to enjoy that positive with the people close to you. And again, that's obviously different than political allies and enemies and things like that. But maybe the more we have this kind of mindset, I think the more positive we can get in our lives. Well, positive is necessary because politics is poison and we need to, because <laughs> yes. it doesn't fix anything. Yeah. And you, you can, you and Aunt Sally and Uncle Jim can like three different people for president and not one of them is going to fix your problems. Yeah, I will like none of them, but that's. <laughs> but that's, but so put that aside and, yeah. you know, yell at the lions because, oh my God, they lost again <laughs> or, you know, whatever. But pick well, on I the was a Wisconsinite, or... that would have been a different conversation. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Bears have never been good. Right, exactly. Exactly. Or or Packers. Packers. Anyway. All right. Well, listen, um, I need to run here. Yes, we could probably go for another two hours. (laughs) We we could. We could could chat endlessly, and that would be fun. But I have hungry people who would find it increasingly less and less entertaining. I'll be there in 10 minutes. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll make it 12. I got to get the cannoli. Perfect. Perfect. All right, my friend, I'm very grateful for you asking me to come back on the show. This is awesome. It's been my pleasure. Really so we'll come it. back. We'll, I want to talk to you. I really want to get into this, the Livingston thing. Um, You're going to have to send me to something to read because if we're talking about Don, he is uh, really intelligent. So I'm going to have to read it. Well, it's, it's, I, I will share with you the title of the book. Uh, it's called, well, everybody. It's called Vital Remnants. He's got an essay in the book. I'll put a link to that on the show notes page. Also, um, really good book, but worth the price of admission just for that essay. And uh, and then that's going to do it. Thank you so much for agreeing. And I think you've exploded your time budget. But <laughs> <laughs> No, this is, I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your dinner. And I'm looking forward to the next one and the next time we chat. Me too. Thanks, Michael. All right, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I will have the links to the 10th Amendment Center on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 99, as well as that la one of the last things Michael mentioned was the surveillance self-defense guide. I'll put a link to that on the page. And if you're interested in baking, the no-need bread recipe. I'm also going to add a link to the book I mentioned, Battle Remnants, uh, for the Don Livingston uh, essay article, and then also a link to Michael's previous episode. So a few things to look at. Uh, please do share these episodes on social media and with your friends. Uh, it helps grow the audience, and that's always a good thing for everybody, mostly me. And have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next time. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. One of the things, just one of the things I do to pass time instead of doing the things I ought to be doing is watching stupid things on uh, on YouTube. And I, I admit, and I've told the world this on a couple of occasions, I, I have a genuine appreciation for the edited versions of the America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent things, uh, especially the, the singers mostly. The other ones I don't really care about. You're a bigger man than I. Um, well, you know, I don't admit I don't admit admit these well, guilty I'll, pleasures. I'll but every once, you know, because they show you usually they're going to show you either someone who's really great from the gate, or you look at this person and they, oh my god, why are you there? And as soon as that person sings, they, I I am better for hearing this person sing. Right. And and so. One of the things I also like watching is just the clips of whatever. John, Johnny is really kind of fun to watch because I like Johnny Carson. But there was a, a Gene Wilder, maybe his last appearance on Conan. And the, the headline was that uh, it was the only time Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks ever argued. Mm -hmm. So, well, I'm interested to know what this is because I know a little bit about the relationship. And it was over the song and dance number of putting on the Ritz in Young Frankenstein. And Mel read it and said, you want to put, what is this? You want to put this in? And Gene said that he argued for 20 minutes. And Mel said, okay, it's in. What do you mean it's in? Wow. You made me go through that for 20 minutes? Listen, if you hadn't argued for it, it wouldn't be good. If you argued for it, I know it's going to be good. I trust you. So now it's in. Uh, 
that's hilarious. It's like, wow. So that, so really the whole thing about the Gene Wilder thing was that when he was doing Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor, uh-huh. he said that, you know, sometimes, and it's not, it's not just with women, but sometimes you have a chemistry with somebody where it, it has that kind of, it has that kind of a chemistry that you say, wow, I just, I'm really attracted to that woman. So you're flirting right now. Is that what you're saying? Not necessarily. Um, <laughs> and and Richard and Gene hit it off immediately. And and that chemistry came through in the film, which is why Stir Crazy, which could have otherwise been a terrible movie, was so good. I'm like, where are you going with this? But I feel you, brother. I feel you. Well, where I'm going with that is... It's all we're, we're not, you and I aren't there yet, but yeah, we we, we have what a, we have don't a, diminish my feelings. <laughs> we, we have a we have a a bond, have a, my we friend. Have a, a bond. We have a bond. Yes, we aren't we aren't Woods and Malice, and, and uh, I listen to Woods. Talk. Well, yeah, we're not second rate. And we're the best. We're the best, and so it's just it's in in the time when we're. I, I hate the I hate the the words are we're not allowed. I can't stand the phrase we're not allowed because that you know the governments have not allowed. Well, f- the government, but when we when we are forbidden, for lack of a better word, which is only the same thing, from seeing people and engaging. We could just use no, the German verboten. Yeah, I did that in talking to some guy who posted a chocolate mousse recipe with, with whipped cream. Oh, oh, get out of here! No, no, no. I don't no. even. I don't add whipped cream to anything. Well, I put whipped cream on things that deserve whipped cream, like like. Um, sometimes we'll put it on top of a brownies on, on a ice cream sundae. We'll put whipped cream on on that. We'll put Definitely cream. not on a brownie because if the brownie. brownie to me actually needs anything else on it, I don't want it. Same with pie. I am just a pie purist. Cobbler, I can do because it's just cream. a it's a pile of mess. Well, the ice cream, but, but the ice cream is good, especially if the cobbler's warm. Then you get the, you get the. Well, for cobbler, thing. that's a different story. But pie, like no, if pine. I'm if I'm actually getting a piece of pie no, or a brownie, I don't want to. I don't want anything on it. I just want to have it and be like, okay, either this is amazing if it's too dry what and cream eat something. I don't want. Would it. be good on uh, like a lemon pound cake with some berries on the side. That's nice because you the the aeration and the fat helps even though there's plenty of fat in the pound cake the aeration of the whipped cream helps communicate the flavors and everything else it's it's a nice it's a, part of the lemon or is it something about the pound cake itself mm, that's a very good question uh i'm, I'm going to say probably particularly the lemon. Other ones may not need it, but there's something, well, now I'm going to be specific and say the lemon that I make because I don't know anybody else's. Usually the the ones you get other people's lemon pound cake, it's they made a pound cake, put a lemon next to it and said, now it's lemon pound cake. Well, go, no. (laughs) It doesn't count. They wave lemon over it and chanted limon, limon, limon. Like, no, it, it needs to make me pucker. Otherwise, it's just, it's just bad. It's just pound cake. And then if that's the case, they probably need to make it the right way. Okay. I guess there are situations where I would probably use whipped cream as well. Mm-hmm. Very few, though. Not the not the stereotypical ones. And I don't do ice cream on, like, pie or brownies generally either, although I've had, like, a really good brownie sundae that I would do, but... We did, yeah. we did ice cream on the brownies at the restaurant, but partly because 
most people like there's it. There's an expectation that you're going to get it. Plus, of course, also, I think most people do like it. I know I'm unusual in that, but it's well, just that I'm such a sugar fiend that hmm. if I don't separate it all, I'm just going to like eat everything so fast. I'm never going to enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I think part of the, there's a twofold expectation, at least at the restaurant. Part of it is that you want that, and it does it does function nicely together. You get the warm brownie, uh-huh. you get the cold ice cream, so you have your your tongue and palate has some fun with temperature differences. Um, oh, like a classic baked Alaska. But there's the expectation that a restaurant that you're getting decadence. Yes, if you're going to go out and get something, then yeah. boy howdy, let me have it. Yeah, and, no, I get that. And so at home. A, a really spectacular brownie. It need to me. It needs at least some kind of a sauce, a chocolate sauce or a cream. Oh, egg. interesting. It needs something, and and a big cold glass of milk. But there's 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 the home the home version versus the restaurant version. There's different expectations and different service expectations or presentation expectations. When you're going to get it, you want it to look like wow, I'm paying seven dollars for this. Look at that. Seven. Or, oh, I'm in on seven. <laughs> I'm talking I mean, Tallahassee. I don't know LA prices. If I'm ever allowed to uh, eat somewhere again in LA, a nice brownie Sunday or something, or just brownie, a really well done brownie with a scoop of ice cream, just the scoop of ice cream is probably seven. Man, oh man, oh man. I mean, but think of their rent. Their leases are so insanely high. Yeah, but now there's a virus, so they haven't got to pay them. So no, well, <laughs> although I'm seeing on a, and I, you know, I read like Eater and things like that. And I, I try to keep up with the restaurants in my neighborhood. And so many mainstays are out of business permanently. This group, one from Patina Group, this is, uh, they've been in like the Disney concert hall area. They're, they're kind of a very high end uh, pre and post opera night type of a restaurant. They've been around for like 25 years and they're shutting down permanently. So there's a lot of ones like that that are just gone. That that's sad. It's it is un, it is incredibly sad, and the long term ramifications. I mean, this is partly what we're going to talk about. Is just oh. no. No one knows the future, but there, I'm I'm reading things. That wasn't an intentional segue. No, that's it okay. A, it was it worked out good. Um, oh, before we get into that part, 